Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 203. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Tamara Vishai. Hi. And as the title of the episode very clearly lays out, we are going to be talking about why we study art history. But as with any study, it's not done in the abstract. People go to schools or programs to learn about particular topics. And your story, which is where I'd like to begin, I find particularly interesting as far as how you came to major in art history. So actually, like a lot of paths in my life, it was completely unintentional. My mom is an artist. And so I grew up in a house that was just filled with art, like a salon. I mean, it was just, you know, every square inch (laughs) was covered in her beautiful art. And if not hers, then works that she'd bought by other people. But original art was just a part of my life, my whole life and being drawn. I always drew myself. And I always thought that that was my special talent in this life was that I was an artist. And I was always doodling on everything. I always had teachers give feedback to my parents, like, you know, she's a little bit of a space cadet. She's always doodling. And they always had to explain, like, no, no, she's listening. She just kind of needs to do that with her hands. And so I was anticipating majoring in fine art when I went to college. And, you know, I had a portfolio out of high school and I went to different programs and ended up actually at University of Toronto because my parents are Canadian. And so I knew that if I went to a Canadian school, I would get taken care of. And I was looking at University of Toronto and their studio art program was first come first serve, which, you know, isn't necessarily like the best criteria to get into a fine art program, but it was a huge school. And I just couldn't get into those classes. By the time I registered, it was too late. And so I took art history as a way of kind of filling that space as I was waiting for those studio classes to open up. And I just fell in love. There was something about the study of people creating the art and that kind of intellectual study of history and the world seen through the eyes of these artists that I realized I actually had more of a talent for. You know, I could render things, but I didn't really feel like I had a whole lot of insight that I brought to it. I didn't really feel like I was doing anything new. And maybe you're not supposed to feel that way in college. Like maybe you go to art school to really hone the fundamentals and then you can go off and do something exceptional and innovative. But even then I found I was starting to find art making a little bit tedious. And I found really the academic study to be so exciting. And so that's how I got into that. And really, as soon as I could, as soon as I graduated, I knew that I was going to spend the next year prepping for grad school. And I moved to Germany for a year to learn German because I knew that that was a prerequisite to study art history at the graduate level. Then I did a master's and I really thought I was going to do a PhD. And then studying art history hit its own wall. And there was a different kind of tedium that wasn't entirely the way that I wanted to write about it and the way that I wanted to talk about it. It got too deep into not enough. When I was studying for my comprehensive exams, I got to really pick up a lot of breadth that I hadn't had in a long time. And I loved connecting different periods to each other through different artworks that were 
kind of, I could make these associations in my mind. And I got told in grad school, you know, oh, that's a bit of a leap. You know, you might want to stay inside the frame, stay really focused, focus like narrower and narrower. And I felt like I was around a lot of people who were just focused too narrowly. And I started teaching as a TA and I just fell in love with it. I wanted to go back to a place where I was catching people at the beginning, where I was, you know, where I had been, where I really fell in love with it and get them young and get them ripe and explain how interesting this could be. And you can do that. You can make those connections when you're at that level. In the capacity that you talk about art and applying for art school, the competitiveness associated with that, and also, I think, some metric of talent, I'd be really interested to hear if you think you could describe an aptitude for art history in similar capacities, because to me, there might be some interesting connections between art and art history, and I'd love to know if you think similar terms, like talent, can apply mutually. First and foremost, I would say that artists and art historians have a very contentious relationship with each other. I found when I was really kind of in that heady place in school where I would call up my mom and tell her, turns out creative genius doesn't exist, mom. It's just movements stacked on top of movements and artists kind of steeped in their own contexts and speaking to each other that way. And she was like, uh, (laughs) you know, how can art historians claim to know what's going on inside the head of the artist? I mean, in that way, I think that that's an argument that's been going on forever. I took a course in grad school that was about trauma and visuality. And we talked about how the experiencing of trauma, there's the first person narrative, and then there's the third person narrative. There's the person that experiences the thing. And then there's the kind of objective overview of that thing. And both of them know everything and both of them know nothing. It's like each knows what the other can't. And I think that that is a really good metaphor for the artist's experience and the art historian's experience. In terms of the actual talent level, they're two really different kinds of talent. I don't know. Sometimes I see what my mom is creating and I think, oh my God, her brain works in a completely different way than mine. She's comfortable starting something and just seeing where it takes her. And I, as I realized, I actually have a lot more talent as an academic than I do as an artist. That's the complete opposite of how I work. I love to think big picture and really know where I'm going. And then I fill in the details. To me, that's crafting an argument, not crafting an art object. And so I think they're two very different kinds of talent that way. That said, I don't know, to be an art historian in particular, I feel like means that, you know, you can craft an argument, you can do all that stuff that academics do, but you also really appreciate the kind of wild irrationalities of an artist, but also the very rational thought processes of artists. You know, you just love to look at that kind of unfolding aesthetic experience and you're comfortable like holding your nose and just jumping in. I think that's something that art historians really have to hold on to themselves because it's very easy, you know, the higher you ascend that ivory tower, the, (laughs) how far can I push this metaphor? I mean, you know, it gets too scary to jump off. You don't want to lose your credibility and you're scared of kind of losing the academic language. But if you give yourself some permission to really swim with the artists again, I think that's where the best art criticism and the best art writing comes from. The mention of the infamous ivory tower gives a great deal of imagery to my mind Obviously, there are many relationships within our society, even aside from art history, 
that are not only contentious, but I would say openly hostile, where academics, especially of higher level education, are not regarded as wise or insightful, but demeaning and elitist. And while I have several thoughts on that, to me, one of the encouraging aspects of any ivory tower is that academia, a system built by human beings, constructed that. And I think it's one of the reasons that human beings have created any number of edifices or impressive objects, including art objects, since time immemorial, because it's something bigger than ourselves that we can look to and say, some aspect of this is still human, because it was touched by humanity and can be described by humanity. And I bring that back to art history to say that for me, what is encouraging and useful about art history is not only that it studies human beings and what they create, but I think, if done well, makes that side of humanity, that expressive, contemplative, arguably isolated at times, part of the human experience, tangible for masses who might not otherwise understand what these pieces represent or the movements and historical periods to which they belong. And I'd love your thoughts there if you think art history done well can minimize that hostility between the ivory tower and those who aren't in academia, or if you don't have thoughts to that question, any experiences you've had as it comes to the ivory tower and the masses, so to speak. I think if you're going to talk about art history, quote unquote, done well as appealing to more people, then you're talking about a different art history than its founders intended. Any of us who are in the business of making art history more accessible, we've had to kind of pry it from their cold, dead hands because it's not a discipline that really was meant to speak to the masses. It was meant to speak to the people who understood it. My husband has a great expression that he will say that he shouldn't be credited with, but he introduced it to me. He's a musician and he said, you know, you can learn three chords for a thousand people or a thousand chords for three people. The art historians of the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, I mean, they were speaking their thousand chords to three people. I'm not necessarily judging that. It's on brand, you know? I mean, museums were meant to be these very rarefied spaces for these exceptional objects and keeping them safe. They weren't meant to be houses of education. And that's a pretty recent development. So even when you see a lot of museums now that are really reaching out, I mean, they're doing everything they can to appeal to as many people as they can. It doesn't erase that reputation. And I will also say that when you are in school to study art history and to make the next generation of curators, they're not doing a whole lot to open that space up. I mean, maybe. I I don't know. I'm a little out of touch now. Like, I finished my program 10 years ago. So I don't know what it's like when kind of young, cool professors really break the discipline wide open to their younger, impressionable students. But I felt like I was in a club that wanted to stay in a club. And so there are a lot of times that I've looked at the work that I do with The Lonely Palette and thought to myself, like, ugh, I sure hope (laughs) professors that I had in grad school don't listen to this because I don't want them to think that I'm in any way disrespecting the discipline. That is a fear I will feel in my heart, rationally or not, forever, because that's how I was trained. I always feel like I'm kind of a maverick. This is interesting. I was at Target the other day, and I checked my email, and I was waiting in line, and you know, what else are you going to do? And I got a note on Reddit 
where I post my new episodes. And I post it specifically on the subreddit for art history. So you know that the people who go there take this stuff seriously. And somebody made a comment about my episode saying, you know, you offered a pretty interesting perspective on Donatello. Really, I can't believe you didn't talk about Cimabue and how, you know, he was that link between the flatness of the Byzantine and, you know, moving into the more rounded, modeled Renaissance style. And I thought to myself, you know, at first I was like, oh, God, I should have. Oh, my God, I really should. Uh, like, oh, I'm you know, bad art historian. And then I was like, whoa, whoa, I have 20 minutes. If somebody wants to really dive in more deeply, they can Google this. But I'm not going to carry the expectations of that whole tower on my back. Because when I was there, there was this feeling that knowledge is all we have. We must have more. This is how we stake our claim in this world. And I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like you can't drown somebody who's just coming to this discipline in fact after fact after fact. You have to link them together. You have to tell a story. And once they're in that story and once they buy into that story, then they'll be more receptive to details. But it's like my mom's art object. If you don't know where you're going, for me, if I don't know where I'm going, I have a very hard time really engaging. And so I try to teach that way and make it clear that there's a story here and there's a beginning, middle, and end. And I'm not going to be able to talk about Cimabue and Duccio and Giotto and all of these links that go from, you know, medieval style to Renaissance style. Like, I've got 20 minutes. I want to tell you about Donatello. I'm going to try to get you there as fast as possible so that you want to stick around. You're illuminating, at least for me, interesting forces that sound like they're at play within the field of art history. And primarily when you say knowledge is all we have as a feeling or a sentiment perhaps shared by many, that, as I'm sure is true of other studies, there is not only a tradition, but an expectation of traditions upheld, which for me is really interesting because if art history is studying art for whomever it might be, as art evolves, I'd be really curious to see that the methods of art history may not. And before I go any further on that wondering, do you have any thoughts there? I think you actually put your finger on something that makes me a little bit sheepish when I talk about art history in these kinds of big stereotypical ways, because I studied modern European, and that is like one type of person. <laughs> you know, I mean, Somebody who studies the Renaissance is another type of person. And I probably shouldn't paint with such a broad brush, but like there are definitely people who feel more comfortable in parts of the discipline that already have their roadmap and they want to keep contributing to that. And it's like safe and they're safe and it's kind of conservative and they're kind of conservative. And so that is one kind of art historian. There are other kinds of art historians who actually will look at the same period and like blow it wide open and say, you know, we've never really looked at this established canon of, I don't know, what's the most like common thing, like Western Renaissance art from a gendered perspective or from voices that otherwise wouldn't have been heard, which you start to hear much more as you get into the 20th century and, and now into the 21st century. I was kind of in the middle. I kind of liked my established way of doing things until I didn't, but I felt kind of safe in my constraints of looking at early 20th century European art. There are people who are studying artists today. I mean, any contemporary art historian 
they're cool. I mean, they're really looking for new ways to tell new stories. And in that way, they're critics, like they're scholars of contemporary criticism. And that's very different than only focusing on Winkelmann and Kant and, you know, going back into those 18th century, 19th century philosophers who we kind of have already put into their boxes. So it's not fair to say that there aren't art historians who are blowing that cannon open or allowing it to shapeshift. There absolutely are those kinds of art historians out there. I think that if you ask the average person what they think an art historian does all day, you know, they're going to say there's something very dusty and conservative and elitist about the way that we look at art and that I therefore am supposed to look at art and that if I don't understand that story or if I'm not familiar with that story, I'm not going to get it, quote unquote, get it. And so a lot of people then look at it the way that they look at anything else that they perceive as really academic, you know, up there in the rarefied air at the top of the ivory tower. And they're just really put off by that. I want to come back to the mention of the average person, but before that, returning to the sentiment that knowledge is all we have, I find it plays in a really interesting way with art and my perception of humanity. I would nod to Socrates and claiming that all he knows is that he knows nothing and the role that knowledge plays in how we navigate or understand the world. I think there are some people, and I'm certainly interested in their thoughts as I over-intellectualize everything, who would say we don't have knowledge, and it's a fabricated barrier against the unknown, things we can't grasp, and language with which to approach the shadowy masses of the universe around us. And I don't think knowledge and feeling are necessarily opposed, or actually that knowledge isn't a thing, but when it comes to art, I'm always fascinated to wonder at what feelings motivated the art created, or perhaps ideas and concepts, and I'd love to know what thoughts you have on the potential of art history to over-intellectualize, or to sterilize feelings that maybe are difficult to put into words. I think art history does that all the time. But if you're looking at an expression of somebody that has no words, the words used by art historians to articulate it, I think if you're a good art historian, is not to try to give words to that and say, well, you couldn't do it because you weren't capable of it, but I'm going to fly in with my red cape and tell you what you meant. I think that a good art historian is somebody who says, look at this act of expression and look at this other person's act of expression and look at this previous generation's act of expression. I don't know. How can we track the trajectory of this expression in a way that is really helpful to us to understand it? I don't think that the real expressive power of a work of art requires understanding a history of the artist and a history of that artist's context. I think that you can have an extremely powerful experience standing in front of a Mark Rothko painting and really giving yourself over to it. I don't think that people are that comfortable doing that if they don't have an art historian giving them permission to, who's kind of like gone in there first, surveyed the scene and said, it's cool, guys, you can do this too. If you have an incredibly powerful experience standing in front of a Rothko and you don't know anything about him, that's fine too. You're not necessarily missing anything. 
I tended to find that those experiences kind of eluded me without a little bit more context. But again, I'm very verbal. I'm better at verbal storytelling and it speaks more to me. And so I find that that story is really helpful when I'm in front of that artwork. But I don't think that that story should ever supersede the object or attempt to articulate something that doesn't already exist within the work itself. When you refer, I think, very relatably so, to the anxiety or fear some people have when placed in front of a piece or when brought to a museum by a relative or friend, how might you instruct people, in this case the average individual who is not an academic art historian, to move past that fear or to confront and grow from what I think is a debilitating fear that keeps people from really impressive accomplishments of humanity that often speak to very powerful and universal concepts. First and foremost, I'll say the same thing that my gym buddy says, consistency. Just go. Keep going and find your friends. Find those objects that you always come back to see and always make your way through the space so that you find that buddy painting that you fell in love with or that you always were really drawn to and you don't know why. And as you go to find it, you're going to pass others, but you get more comfortable traversing that space and you never know what you might stumble upon or they'll move it and then you've got to go to another corner of the museum and start over. Go on a tour. Let yourself be led around and then you can decide for yourself if your tour guide is any good. If they're telling you something that you really didn't realize was cool and powerful and significant about the objects that you're seeing, or if you think, man, that didn't tell me anything, well, they're ostensibly a professional, so maybe you don't need to be a professional to know how to tell a good story. Pull out your phone, Google the painting, like if you want to know more about it. I think the pursuit of more information is always better. But that's just me. You know, some people find that that's too overwhelming and they just rather sit with it. Sit with it. Just sit with it. Like sit on a bench and just stare. Time yourself. Give yourself five minutes where you're just looking at this object. And I promise you, you'll see things in it that pull you in that you never would have noticed otherwise. In terms of overcoming that kind of larger barrier between you and the museum, I think reading the wall text, you know, so much energy goes into making that text as readable and as accessible as possible. Exhibitions are almost always telling stories. You know, they have a thesis that's right in front of you. Oftentimes it's the title of the show. And pretend it's history. Pretend it's a podcast. Pretend that it's something that you trust to be interesting. And that this is your path through. It's just instead of a lot of text, it's just image after image after image. You know, there's so much about this that's stereotyped. I think that calling my show a podcast instead of art history lessons completely changes the feel. People trust that podcasts are interesting. And so much narrative radio today follows the model of like this American life. And it's like this person that you never would have spoken to or never would have come across who lives in East Nowhere, Bumsville in America, turns out has this incredible story. And I feel like replace that random person with this random artwork and people will, you know, they just want to know what the story is. 
really, that's what art history is. It's a really good story about every one of these objects and how they themselves fit into a larger story. So I think look for the story. And it also requires that the curators really are good storytellers. And that's not always the case. And in addition to your call to look at art, stare at it, be with it, as a final question to you, Tamar, are there connections you would make outside of the realm of art history as far as the skills it teaches, something that someone might find applicable beyond a museum, beyond works of art, things maybe you notice in your everyday life when you aren't thinking explicitly about the field of study? Yeah, I feel like I just keep kind of beating that storytelling drum. You know, whenever I sit down to write a new episode, I always think, what is my way in? How am I going to start this story? Because if I want the facts at my fingertips, I've got them. You know, I've got the textbooks, I've got Wikipedia, I've got whatever I need to do that visual analysis that you do a million times in school when you study art history. But the framing device of the episode is always like waiting for my muse. And I think that that says something. You know, there's the grammar of the story and there's the vocabulary. And the grammar is like that whole larger structure. The vocabulary, you can just fill in. You know, you can just find the right facts and drop them in. But if they don't have a structure, then you're just a docent leading people around, dropping bullet points, and people fall away. Like you don't have them in your hand. And so I always felt like that could be specific to art history or it could be specific to anything. And I feel like treating every object as an opportunity to get somebody else excited about it, it just feels universal. I wish that more people approached art history with that ultimate aim, is to kind of tap into that universal storytelling that gets anybody excited about hearing a story about anyone else. Because that's what these objects are, right? It's people telling their own stories, not with words. That's why I wanted to go into radio in the first place, because I felt like it was just one kind of storytelling that art history had kind of set me up for. And as you've mentioned or alluded to the Lonely Palette a handful of times, I'd like to point listeners in your direction, especially those who weren't previously aware of you or the show. And I'd love to hear what you love most about producing it. I love that I have total permission to talk about art exactly how I always wanted to. That's kind of my selfish answer. I love that I get to just be me. I couldn't have anticipated how many people needed a show like this. And I am so flattered that I get to do this. I mean, I'm really kind of beside myself because I get little notes from people all the time about how they find the show to be really accessible and how they never realized they were interested in art. Somebody who is a real fan of the show said beautifully that they go into a museum now and they feel possibility where they used to feel terror. That just made my heart melt because it's like, I'm not that far from them. I felt that way in grad school or when I started studying art history in the first place. It's like all of this art just opened itself up to me and I was like ecstatic. I couldn't get enough of it. I would go into museums and just like, sniff <laughs> and just smell the air. And it just felt so like I was so excited to be there. But I grew up in a museum. Like I grew up not only being taken to museums, but like I said, just surrounded by art. So that was something that I was really familiar with at a very young age. 
And the idea that people who didn't feel that way originally can pop in their earbuds and walk around the museum. I don't think you have to be at the museum to listen to the show, but if you happen to be, then you can walk around and feel like this is your place too. And not because the museum has dumbed itself down for you, not because like the museum is trying to speak to everybody, but because you are willing to listen to somebody who loves to tell stories. You and I together will break this place open. And that's an amazing feeling because it's what I loved about it. And it's what I love being able to be a participant in that experience. And to borrow that word of yours, I'd like to thank you for participating today. You come across always as articulate and insightful, but also to a theme underlying this episode, approachable. And back to the idea of knowledge, I'm of the belief that it's not worth much if people can't understand it or feel comfortable sitting in it, processing it, thinking about it. So truly, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Well, it was my pleasure. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and I, for one, despite having taken a few courses in college, don't know much about art history and would love to hear from listeners out there who have had any number of experiences. So if you have any comments, feedback, or thoughts of any kind, please reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show. We'll also link to Tamar's The Lonely Palette. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.